Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to 2 Corinthians 1. There's a lot of pink in here today. It all works, right? That's good. You know you're going to have a bad day when your car horn goes off accidentally and remains stuck as you follow a group of Hell's Angels down the highway. You know you're going to have a bad day when the birds singing outside your window in the morning is a buzzard. You know you're going to have a bad day when you wake up and discover that your braces are locked together. You know you're going to have a bad day when your birthday cake collapses under the weight of all the candles. Some of you have had that experience, right? We're going to spend this morning beginning our study in 2 Corinthians, and in this opening section, the first 11 verses of chapter 1, Paul is discussing human suffering and God's comfort. Let me give you a little historical context behind the writing of this letter. Rob's going to show you a map of Asia, or I'm sorry, Corinth, Acacia, and Ephesus. Corinth, of course, is a city in the Peloponnesian, the southern end of the uh, Greek Peninsula, Acacia is the whole southern region. Directly east of that, about 45 miles east of Corinth is Athens, the capital, and then a couple hundred miles east of that is Ephesus, straight across the Aegean. Paul had founded the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey, uh, probably about AD 51, the spring of AD 51. He remained there for 18 months and sailed back to his home church in Caesarea, probably in the fall of AD 52, so about 18 months. Most of Paul's third missionary tour was spent in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. It was probably 250,000 people at the time. Corinth was probably 100 to 200,000 people at the time. So Paul spends three years in the city of Ephesus ministering there, and he wrote a series of four letters to the church in Corinth. He found out they were in trouble. Uh, He wrote four letters. Two of them are lost. We only have 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but there was a total of four letters. The first letter mentioned that we know is lost was mentioned in 1st Corinthians 5, 9. We don't have copies of that. Later on, he found out there was continual quarreling and divisions and fighting, so he wrote a second letter to them. And the second letter that he wrote is 1st Corinthians. We have that letter. He likely wrote that from Ephesus probably in late AD 55 or maybe very early 56. He then physically sent Timothy to Corinth, his protege. He said, you need to go there and check on it while he continued to stay at uh, Ephesus. The problem was false teachers had arrived in Corinth and in order to gain a hearing, they began to badmouth Paul. They said, well, he's not really an apostle. I mean, look at his credentials. He's just a short guy and uh, he's not very uh, eloquent, et cetera, et cetera. So Paul then made what he called a painful visit uh, to them. He records that in 2 Corinthians 2. We'll get to that next week. So he actually physically came there and they had a little come to Jesus meeting. And that meeting did not go well. So he returned back to Ephesus and he wrote them the third letter, which is called the severe letter. 2 Corinthians 2 talks about a severe letter he wrote them and he sent Titus to deliver that. So he's having a lot of ins and outs and ups and downs with this church. That letter is also lost to us. Later on, Titus gets back to Paul and he says, the church is getting their act together. They're accepting your authority. They have repented of pretty severe immorality there. And um, so Paul writes them the fourth letter, which is 2 Corinthians. And that's the letter we're going to start today. Now, the differences between 1 and 2 Corinthians are vast. 1 Corinthians is very objective, very practical. 2 Corinthians is very subjective, uh, very, very personal. 1 Corinthians gives us insight into the character of an early church, and 2 Corinthians is almost autobiographical. It's really a lot of insight into the character 
of Paul himself. Uh, 1 Corinthians is pretty deliberate, pretty didactic, a lot of instruction. 2 Corinthians is really impassioned uh, in testimony. This is the most transparent of all of Paul's epistles. This book reveals his heart, his passion, his fears, his doubts, uh, his humanness. You're really going to see Paul the human uh, here in 2 Corinthians. So he wrote this letter to them to really affirm his ministry, defend his authority as an apostle, because they were doubting that, to prepare them for his visit, and probably most importantly, to refute false teachers that were really leading them astray there at that point. So let's pick up the narrative in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Acacia. Acacia is that, of course, the southern part of that. So there were a lot of false teachers that had come to Corinth to try and discredit Paul and attack his authority as an apostleship and say, look, his opinion is no better than our opinion. As a matter of fact, our opinion is better than him. And Paul says, no, I'm an apostle. An apostle is one sent with a message. And it's not their message. It's a message of someone in authority over them. In this case, Paul says, I'm, a, I'm one sent with a message and the message is from Jesus Christ. So the mission of Paul and the message of Paul is from God. It's not just human opinion. So he's distinguishing his calling from God and these false teachers, which are human sources, and they're making the message up as they go. So because Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, his authority comes from Jesus Christ, and therefore the Corinthian church should pay attention to and obey what God is saying to them and ignore these false teachers. Now the reality is that's true of us as well. We come here and listen to pastors and teachers teach, not because they're human opinion. We come because we want to hear what God says. Only God has the authority to speak to us with literally authority and tell us what to do and why to do it because of who he is. And that's what Paul is reiterating to them. So after he establishes his apostleship is from Jesus Christ, he says, verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know grace is God's unmerited favor. Uh, we don't deserve it, but we get it. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is, is uh, getting what you don't deserve. And he says, peace, grace and peace, peace is one of the blessings of God's grace. Uh, if you've ever been in the situation where there's a lot of conflict, you understand the value of peace. It is an item of great preciousness. And peace with God is one of God's blessings to us. We have an intimate relationship with God. God says, your heavenly Father, God our Father. Okay, the literal translation for that in the New Testament on a number of occasions is Abba. Abba is, of course, the Hebrew for Daddy. And we have the privilege of calling our Father Daddy through Jesus Christ and his reconciliation for us. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. So now he's going to introduce the main theme of the first 11 verses, and it's about comfort in suffering. And he says God is the God of comfort and uh, the Father of mercies. Mercy it means compassion. Mercy has compassion over the sufferings of another. When you see someone else suffer, you have compassion for them. That's what he's talking about. The word comfort here is real critical. We're going to spend some time on this. This word comfort is used 10 times in the first 11 verses. So when you look at your Bible, you're going to see the word comfort show up a lot in the first 11 verses. We often think of comfort as comfortable. And we think comfortable means uh, free from troubles, free from trials, no hassles, no hang-ups, no conflict. We think human comfort means, you know, take it easy, smooth sailing, no sweat, right? People say, no worries. Uh, in reality, the Greek source of comfort is exactly the opposite of that. The Greek source of the word comfort is paraclete, P-A-R-A-C-L-E-T-E, paraclete. And it literally means to come alongside, to come alongside and help. So it's to come alongside and help, and the Holy Spirit is called what? The Comforter, and Jesus in the same passage in John called him the Helper. So the Holy Spirit is seen as that paraclete, that one who comes alongside to help. 
And comfort, by the way, means encouragement. It does not mean sympathy. Short opinion here. I don't have much opinion or much virtue in sympathy. And I have even less in pity. Pity is pitiful, right? Pity doesn't help. So when we talk about comfort, we're not talking about, oh, you poor thing. I feel so sorry for you. That doesn't help. That's not what comfort here is. Comfort in the Latin is comfort. C-O-M means together or with. And fortis, where we get fortress, it means strength. So comfort means to come alongside and bring strength, bring power, bring help, bring courage, bring substance to be of benefit to the one who needs comfort. So the Holy Spirit is viewed and called by Jesus Christ, the comforter who comes alongside us and brings help and strength and courage and boldness. In human terms, it's like um, you, you're moving from your residence to another residence. You got all these packing boxes and the packing boxes are really, really heavy and really, really big and you can't carry it by yourself. And so you say to one of your friends, come on over and help me lift this, right? So they help you lift it. And some of you have enough stuff that it's too heavy for the two of you, so you call the guy who drives the forklift and you say, come on over and get this packing box and forklift it out to the semi-truck because I've got so much stuff in my house, it takes a semi to move it all, right? So the forklift is kind of the one who brings the strength to the table. Or it's like when you're in a hospital, right, and you're helpless, you push a button and you call for who? Hopefully a nurse, right? who comes alongside and gives you your happy medicine so you don't feel any more pain, right? That's the help. That's the strength. So the picture here is God is the God of all comfort. He sends the Holy Spirit to bring strength, to bring power, to bring uh, help into your life at that point. And the truth of it is, Paul says, God always has enough strength for whatever need we are experiencing. You know, and every Sunday morning, we um, practice something that I think is wonderful here. We, uh, we practice prayer. We pray and we praise. We have issues in our life. And when you listen to the prayer requests of our Manna family every Sunday morning, you know that most of the problems that are listed in our Manna Sunday morning prayer list have no human solution. Isn't that right? There's stuff we pray about that there's no human solution for. If God doesn't bring strength and comfort and change into that situation, there is no hope. Because God ultimately is the only one who can fix what is broken in our lives. And he will fix it in his time and his way. So Paul blesses God because he's the source of all comfort. He's the source of God's strength. And we need his strength because we experience suffering and affliction and troubles on a regular basis. Verse 4, he says, who comforts us in all our affliction. Underline the word all, because when I am listening to us talk, most of us don't just have one affliction. We just don't have one problem. We don't have one trial. We have multiple troubles and trials, and some of them you're related to. So that we will be able to, yes, I know, uh, and you're part of their trouble and trials as well, right? So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. So underline the words all and any with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's kind of a bit of a tongue twister. Let's try and unpack that. Here's the principle. God strengthens us in our suffering so we are able to strengthen others in their suffering. God strengthens us in our suffering, so we are able to strengthen others in their suffering. We heal when we help others heal. The word affliction here in the Greek is thalipsis, and it means tribulation. And it literally means pressing together. This word affliction means crushing pressure. It means to be in a very narrow and confined place. It means hemmed in shoved between two things, the beings crushed together by pressure. How many of you have been in a, how many of you have a garage that has a vice in it? 
You know what a vice is? Okay. You crush things in a vice. You know? How many of you ever had a nutcracker that you used to crack walnuts or hazelnuts? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about our life being in a vice. It's pressed together and circumstances put pressure on us and circumstances hem us in, whether they're people or situations. It's like being run over and crushed by a Mack truck. Sometimes we feel like our lives are being squeezed, right? Like a vice. There's just a lot of pressure. Every way we turn, there's pressure in our lives. That's the word here, affliction. Now, the, unfortunately, the Corinthians thought that they had grown to a place of spiritual maturity where suffering or affliction or pressure should not be part of their lives. And we have some folks like that today. They believe in health and wealth. And, you know, if you name it and claim it, and so therefore when pressure occurs, well, that's really not my problem. Uh, it really doesn't exist, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah, it does. We all have it. The issue is what do we do with it? Paul says you never graduate from the school of suffering. You never graduate from the school of suffering in this life. However, the promise is what? God comforts us in all our affliction. Underline the word all. I want you to understand that that is God's deliverance in trouble, not God's deliverance from trouble. God comforts us. He brings strength to cope with the trouble and the trials and the pressure. In the middle of the trouble and trial and pressure, he doesn't always deliver us from the trouble. Unfortunately, in this life, suffering is neither optional nor avoidable. Pain and problems, troubles and trials are inevitable, and we don't like to hear this. We don't like to hear it. The truth is, we often hear people lament, why is this world so full of pain and suffering? Now, you know and I know that ultimately suffering is the result of sin, right? We live in a broken, sinful, fallen world that's at war with God. Ever since Adam and Eve, the human race has been separated from God through sin. And when you're separated from the source of life and the source of peace and the source of hope, you get death and dying, and war, and suffering, and struggle, etc. So most of the suffering in life occurs because we live in a broken planet, right? A sinful planet. However, some suffering is the direct result of personal sin. When we choose to sin, we are choosing to experience pain. We don't believe that at the time. Right? We believe that we're really chasing something that's really good, but anytime we choose to sin, we're choosing to experience loss because sin always produces losses. And we've rebelled against God's will and God's way, and therefore we're going to experience those losses. But what Paul's really talking about here is Christians many times suffer simply because they follow Jesus. When you make a decision to follow Jesus, who declares war on you? Satan obviously does. So now you're in the battle at that point in time, and some suffering comes just because you follow Jesus. Some suffering comes because of personal sin, and some suffering occurs. We live in a broken world, and that's the stuff that we go, this doesn't make any sense to me. I've done nothing wrong. Why do good people experience bad things? We live in a broken planet, okay? So the important thing to remember is not that we have pressure and suffering. It's that God has eternal purpose in everything including suffering. We know that God's purpose for each of us, each of his children, is to make us more like Jesus in our character and conduct, right? Romans 8, 28, God causes what? All things to work together for good. That means all things means all things. All things means your troubles, your trials, your relatives, your job, your blah, blah, fill in the blanks. God's going to use all that suffering all that struggle, all that trouble and trial and problem to shape us into the image of Jesus. We know that. So everything that occurs in our life, God is going to use to make us like Jesus, his son, and draw us closer to him. God uses suffering to draw us closer to him and deepen our relationship with him. And God comforts us in the middle of that struggle, not so we can be comfortable God encourages us in our suffering so that we can be encouragers to others who are in the middle of suffering. 
God's comfort's usually transmitted through people. You know, the reality is, how many of you know anyone who has not experienced troubles, trials, pains, problems, etc.? You know anybody? No, I don't either. One of the greatest impediments to healing from pain and suffering is self-pity. Self-pity doesn't help you walk, it keeps you a cripple. We have a friend who's a marathoner, <clears throat> and he has a big sign. You know, the, um, when, you're, when you're forbidding something, it's a red circle with a red start to it, and it says, no whining. I like that. No whining. I probably ought to put that on my mirror to remind me, right? Self-pity prevents us from learning the lessons that God wants us to learn. One of the best ways to heal from your own pain is to help somebody else who's worse, got it worse than you are. You know, one of the best things I think you can do when you're in the middle of troubles, ask God to bring someone in your life who you can help, who you can be assistance to, who you can encourage. So, how do you come alongside and encourage others like Jesus came alongside and encouraged us? P.T. Forsyth once said, you must live with people to know their problems. Now we say, okay, that's obvious. I got a lot of problems. I know a lot of people with a lot of problems. We must live with God in order to solve them. So let's talk practically. How do you help the hurting? How do you be of assistance to those who are struggling? Number one, Surrender your own struggling to God's sovereignty. Surrender your own suffering to God's sovereignty. If you're in the middle of, a, of a, a fight with God over the fact that you don't deserve suffering and God's not treating you right and, and you're in the middle of self-pity, you're going to be fairly worthless at helping somebody else in their struggles. So the first issue is, is say, Lord, you have plan in my troubles. You have a plan in my problems and I'm trusting you. God is sovereign over everything that's in our life. So before we're useful to help somebody else, we need to say, Father, thy will be done. Your will be done in my life and whatever you want to accomplish through the struggles I'm having, I want that to happen and mean it. When you pray that, then you will be able to go and help someone else. Number two, pray first, talk second. Not the other way around. And it probably should be 10 to 1. We should probably 10 times pray, one time talk. When you go to someone who's struggling, when you go to someone with problems, when you go to someone who's in pain, most of the time only God knows what they need, right? We think we know what they need. We probably don't know what they need. So that's why you pray. You say, Lord, grant me wisdom and love so that when I go to this person and encourage them, I'll understand what they need, what you want me to do and be. Number three, show up. Be there. Show up. Don't wait. Show up. Your presence says, I care. Your presence is probably more important than the words you use. When you're there, listen more, speak less. How many of you have noticed that pain alters your perception? When you're in pain, it alters your perception, right? Correct? If you put us in enough pain, it really alters our perception. So people that are in the middle of struggling, in the middle of suffering, in the middle of problems or pain or loss or whatever it is, they're in a form of grief at that point and they're not rational. It's okay not to be rational when you're struggling, when you're in pain, when you're dealing with loss or grief or whatever it happens to be. So when you talk to a person who's in the middle of trials and troubles and they're pretty severe and they, they talk and they just vent. Have you ever been around people that talk stupid when they're in pain? Have you ever talked stupid when you're in pain? Have you ever talked stupid when you're not in pain? Yeah. That's level as playing field. So when someone expresses anger or grief or rage or they're furious at God over the pain in their life, let them talk. You're not going to fix that. They're not rational at that point in time. They're hurting at that point in time. Give them time to vent. Just listen. Next, pray with them. Don't just pray for them. Pray with them right then. It's one of the most loving, comforting, strengthening things you can do and do it regularly. 
And here's the key point. You can't fix their pain. Your words can't fix their pain. Even though we try, we go, well, God causes all things to work together for good. You know, that's fairly not comforting when they're in the middle of great loss. They know that. You know that they know that. But we want to make it better. We want their pain to go away. Their pain ain't going to go away just because you and I go. Our presence comforts them, but they're still going to walk through the pain. So here's the point. Only Jesus can heal their pain. You walk with them in their pain toward Jesus. Your and my privilege in encouraging someone is to encourage them in God, to walk with them toward Jesus. Jesus is the source of their comfort, their strength, their brokenness. Jesus is that. So we are not going to fix that, but we can walk with them and shepherd them in their pain toward Jesus. Don't pretend you know what they're experiencing. I've had people say to me, I know how you feel. They're clueless. They don't have an idea how I feel, right? We, I have a friend who told me that when her sister died, tragically in her early 20s, someone came up to her and said, I know how you feel because I felt the same way when my cat died. They wanted her to feel better. I understand. Give them the privilege of good motives. But really? So sometimes you don't have to speak. Sometimes you just be there. One of the most helpful things people said to Marin and I when our son Caleb died, they came and they gave us a hug and said, I'm so sorry. You don't have to be eloquent. There are sometimes you just go to someone who's in the middle of pain and you say, I love you. I'm praying for you. I have no words. It's okay. You don't always have to have words. Matter of fact, most of the time you don't need words. You just need to be there and pray with them and love them. That's courage. That's bringing strength into their lives. Verse 5. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so sufferings are abundant, we get a lot of those, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. The word sufferings here can be their external calamity or they can be internal affliction. Either way, it's either external or internal. And the word abundance here is a very interesting word. It says your sufferings are abundant and your comfort through Christ is abundant. And it literally means to flow over. It means above and beyond. It's like a river that's overflowing its banks because it's at flood stage. And sometimes in our lives we look and go, man, the troubles are just overflowing me. They're just flooding my life. It goes from one thing to another. Murphy has moved in and his whole family, the brothers and the cousins, you know what can go wrong will go wrong at precisely the right time or the wrong time. And there's one for every day of the week. I got seven Murphys in my house. One name Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, right? Okay, you feel like that. That's true. So the troubles are abundant and they're overflowing. And Paul says, God's comfort, God's strength through Christ is equally abundant. It comes in a flood. You know, we said some sufferings because of personal sin, some sufferings because of a broken world, some suffering shows up because you choose to follow Jesus and Satan now wants to destroy you. The Word of God tells us that everyone who faithfully follows Christ is going to suffer persecution. You're going to have hassles. Now that struggle, that suffering is not a tragedy. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. I know you're looking at me and saying, Brad, you need more coffee. How can you say that suffering is a blessing? What did Jesus say in Matthew 5.10? The Sermon on the Mount, he said... Blessed are those, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, persecuted for following Jesus. Why? How? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? So the payoff is eternity with Jesus Christ. The truth of it is, God actually permits suffering in the life of his children. And he permits it to flow over like a flood, and that suffering is not an accident, it is a divine appointment. When we struggle, when we suffer, when there's trials and troubles and toil and tribulations, what are we thinking about? Heaven. God brings heaven 
into our mind more than earth. Suffering teaches us what's eternal and what's temporal. I've talked to cancer survivors, I've talked to people in chronic pain and over and over and over again. The stuff of this life means a whole lot less when you're in the middle of that. All right? That's part of why God does it. He wants our hearts and our minds and our affections set on the things that are above. Anything that draws you closer to Jesus is a blessing. You ought to write that one down. Anything that draws you closer to Jesus is a blessing. And one of the things that will draw us closer to Jesus more than anything else is trouble. Right? Now, there's a law of proportion at work here. The more suffering you endure for following Jesus, the more comfort, the more strength he gives you. How many of you have discovered that God's grace is sufficient for your troubles? How many of you found out that God doesn't write checks in advance? <laughs> right? You can't put God's strength in the bank for a rainy day and say, I'm going to pull this out in two months because God's already given me the grace. God gives you the grace when you need the grace. When do you need his power? When you're in deep doo-doo up to your neck. That's when you need his power. That's when you're going to get it. Remember Israel in the wilderness? Manna. When did they get manna? When they needed it. Every morning, give us this day our daily manna. And they got it, right? Every day. You get it when you need it. You only experience God's strength when you need God's strength. And that's generally when we're in, in the middle of suffering. God's help is always right on time. Never early, never late. We go, God, I need blah, blah, blah. And he says, you'll get it when you need it. And we go, I need it now. He says, no, I'll determine when you need it. I'll give you my grace is sufficient for you, right? This is the same Paul who wrote, power is perfected in weakness. God's power is perfected in my weakness. And therefore, Paul gloried in his suffering because the more he was weak, the more God's power flowed through his life. So God pours the suffering into our life and then his supernatural comfort changes us. Here's one of the most remarkable things. God's strength overcomes your suffering. And you say, well, Brad, I've got lots of suffering. I've got lots of troubles. I've got lots of trials. I've got lots of pressure. How do I receive? How do I get my hands on God's strength? The way you access God's strength is through surrender. Because as long as you're doing it your way, you don't need his strength. You're depending on who? C'est moi, me, right? I can do it my way. I only access his strength when I surrender to God's purpose for my pain. And you know something? When I'm in the middle of pain, a lot of times I don't even understand God's purpose. Other than I know he wants to make me like Jesus. How many of you have ever said, God, why is this happening now? You ever said that? Uh, don't you say that every day? I mean, you put me in enough pain, I'll say it a hundred times a day, right? God has purpose in that, and the way I access his strength is surrendering that and saying, Lord, I'm trusting you even though I don't understand it. And when you surrender, you will receive his power, and then what flows out of your life is not self-pity, it's praise. What flows out of your life is not whining, it's worship. And God's overflowing comfort makes you a comforter. As a matter of fact, the best comforters, the best encouragers I've ever met are the ones with broken hearts. Severely broken hearts. John Stone told me one time that God never uses anybody greatly until he hurts them greatly. He may have big plans for you. I guarantee he does. When you're in the middle of the struggles and the troubles and the trials, hang on to his love. Hang on to his plan, his purpose. Verse 6. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. 
And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Here's the principle. This is very counterintuitive. When you patiently endure suffering, it draws others closer to Jesus. When you patiently endure suffering, it draws others closer to Jesus. Your pain is their gain. We do not suffer for ourselves alone, but also for the benefit of others. And God's comfort to us is not for us alone, it's also for the others. God loans his strength to us so that we can endure suffering, but he loans it to us so we can also give it away. Give his strength to others. John Henry Jowett once said, God does not comfort us to make us comfortable. God comforts us to make us comfortors. His strength, comfort, that strength, he gives us strength so that we can pass it on to someone else. You know, we often say, no pain, no gain, when we're talking about physical exercise programs and stuff like that. Paul says, my pain is for your gain. My pain is for your gain. Paul was willing to endure suffering for following Jesus so that he can encourage others when they were suffering. That's exactly what Jesus did for us, wasn't it? He endured pain, yes, for our gain. And that's what we're to do for others. And the solution for suffering is real simple. Endurance. Patient endurance. If affliction or tribulation or suffering is external pressure, patient endurance is bearing up underneath that pressure. Patient endurance is bearing up under pressure without giving a God a deadline to change it. How many of you have ever told God, God, you got a week to fix this. I can only deal with this for the next week. I'm usually, I don't even wait a week. You know, I'm usually, you know, by the end of the day, I'm done. I'm really done. Patient endurance is bearing up under pressure without giving God a deadline. See, patient endurance is weight training for your faith. It's resistance training for your faith. It's bearing up under that external pressure by trusting God because he's going to give you the strength to do the endurance. He's going to give you the strength and the power to bear up under that pressure. And when he does that, your confidence goes stronger, but your endurance is also a testimony to others. How many of you know people are watching you? They really watch you. If you knew how many people were watching you, it would probably be a little intimidating. Probably a little scary. There's a lot of eyes because we name the name of Jesus and people are watching to see whether we live up to what we say. But Paul says, by the way, we do this together. One of our favorite phrases in manna is life together. And life together is what? Struggles and troubles and trials together. Paul uses the word. He says we're sharers in this together. The word is koinios. It means a partner, a companion, a comrade who shares in the experience of suffering with you. There is nothing that will bond you like shared suffering. Nothing. You don't believe that? Talk to any member of the military who's been in combat especially in life or death situations. Talk to any couple who has gone through a life-threatening illness together, through chemo, together, through surgeries. That's shared suffering. If you have a chronic illness and your spouse is going together with you through that, that's shared suffering. You go through a divorce and you have someone that stays with you during that period of time. That's shared suffering. That is incredibly important. That's encouraging. That's bringing strength. God gives you the strength to do that. Verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction. Paul's talking about him and Timothy. Which came to us in Asia. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. So that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Now, the word burdened here uh, is, is the word badio, and it means to weigh down with a load that's so heavy it cannot be carried. So Paul says, our struggles, our circumstances were so heavy we couldn't endure them. We couldn't 
carried them. As a matter of fact, it was so bad that we despaired. We were completely at a loss. We had no solution, no hope, no way out. Paul says it was so bad, we believed we were going to die. And furthermore, he says it was so bad, we didn't think we were just going to die. We thought it was going to be a great death. A death that probably involved torture before dying. And there was no human solution to this. None. He believed he was going to be tortured before death. We don't know what the circumstances are. It doesn't say that. But whatever it is, God had laid a burden on Paul that he could not carry or even survive on his own. And that burden was not by accident. It was by design. Divine design. People often say, God will never give me anything that I can't handle. Baloney. God routinely gives us trials that we can't handle. So we will stop trusting in ourselves. If we can handle it, we will handle it. Who gets the glory for that? If you handle something and it works really well, who's bragging about it? We are. Of course, we say, man, I got this thing. I got it, right? Then, unfortunately, our strengths become our weaknesses because they lead us into trusting ourselves and not trusting into God. So when God puts us in a situation where there's no solution, no human solution, we have no other option than to do what? Trust Him. Trust Him because we don't have any other option. We don't have any choice at that point. When the doctor says there's nothing we can do, when the divorce papers come, when your job ends and you can't pay the bills, when you get an eviction notice, when your children won't listen to you, when they won't even talk with you, when your grandchildren are making bad decisions, they're out of our control. When we're 100% dependent on God, then God can work his supernatural power. The reality is God will never give you anything that he can't handle through you. God doesn't give us trials so we can take the credit. He gives us trials so we will surrender them to him. And then he works his supernatural power through us. He gets the glory. We get the blessing. Our strength and our faith gets strengthened and other people are drawn to him. So when you're in a situation where there is no human solution, that's exactly where you're supposed to be. That means God's ready to do a supernatural solution. Does that make sense? Some of you are in situations like this. Some of you have been living with no human solution for decades. Have you found him to be faithful? Have you found him day by day by day? He gives you what you need today to get through today, whatever the situation is. Paul says, God has the power to raise the dead. That's called supernatural. So we're trusting in the God who can raise the dead because if he can raise the dead, he can handle any of my problems. Amen. No worries. If he can raise the dead, uh, my problems are no worries to him. Verse 10. Who delivered us from so great a peril of death. Sounds like God delivered Paul. He wrote the letter, obviously, after this deliverance. And will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. You also joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Here's the principle. There is no trouble that God will not deliver you from. In his time and in his way. So trust him and not yourself. How God delivered Paul from death, we don't know. What we do know is that God is faithful. In verse 10, Paul says, God delivered us, past tense. He's delivering us now, present tense. And he will deliver us in the future, future tense. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. John MacArthur tells the story of a workman who was employed on a high-rise building project, a skyscraper. And there were a lot of deadlines, so they had to work at night, 30, 40 stories in the air. 
And this workman was working on the edge of the top floor at night. He slipped and fell, but just managed to grab onto the edge of the wall with his fingers. He began screaming for help, but because it was pitch black and the riveting machines and the metal hammers were making so much noise, no one heard him. After a while, his arms and his fingers began to grow numb, and he lost his hold and fell about three inches to a scaffold that had been underneath him the whole time. <laughs> the darkness had prevented him from seeing it. He had been completely safe the whole time, and he didn't even know it. This is so true of us. Our trials, our troubles, our problems often terrify us, but the everlasting arms of our loving Heavenly Father are always underneath us most of the time we don't know it. Until we lose control or we surrender control and we fall into the arms of our loving Heavenly Father. God will always deliver us from every trouble, but he doesn't promise when he'll deliver us. Joseph was a slave and a prisoner in Egypt for how many years? 13 before he became prime minister. David lived as a life of a fugitive from King Saul for more than 12 years before Saul's death and he became appointed king. God also doesn't promise to deliver us in the way we want him to. See, we want deliverance now and we want it pain-free. God says, I'll deliver you, but I'll deliver you when I'm ready and I'll deliver you how I'm ready. Daniel 3 records King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. Remember, Daniel was taken there as a child, 17-year-old. And this king, Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 3 of Daniel, says he built this 90-foot-high idol, probably of himself, 9 feet wide, 90 feet tall. That's a big idol, right? And he commanded everyone in the kingdom to fall down and worship this idol, or what would happen? It would be thrown in the furnace of blazing fire. You're going to be burned up at that point. And Daniel has three friends named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they say, go pound sand. We ain't going to worship your idol. And Nebuchadnezzar is livid. He gives them one last chance to change their mind, and in, in Daniel 3.16, they have a fascinating response to him. They say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter, which means we don't need to think about it. You know, we don't need any more time. Verse 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They absolutely knew that God was going to deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar's power either by life or by death. And they didn't care which way God chose to deliver them. If you're at the point in time where you're saying, Lord, you deliver me by life or death, I'm okay with that, you will see God move in some powerful ways. They said, we don't care which way you choose to deliver us, but we're going to obey God regardless. Our job is to trust and obey God's. God's job is to deliver us in whatever way he chooses, right? Whenever he chooses. See, our part in God's deliverance is prayer. Paul says at the very end in verse 12, You've been praying for us. You've been praying with us. Keep praying. When we pray and God responds, then God's people should what? Thank him, should praise him. Interesting. How many of us spend as much time thanking God as we do asking him? I probably ask him 10 to 1 over thanking. You know why? Because most of the good things in life I just take for granted. You have hot water this morning? I didn't thank him for the hot water this morning. You know when I'll thank him for the hot water? When the hot water heater goes out. <laughs> and then I don't have it for a day or two. And then when, it, when we get it fixed, I'll be really grateful for hot water. You know how long? Eh, maybe one day. By day two, I take it for granted again. That's why count your blessings, remind, remind what God has already done. Robert Louis Stevenson 
tells of a raging storm that caught a ship off a rocky coast and threatened to drive it to destruction on the rocks. This is a day of sailing vessels. In the middle of the storm, one daring man, contrary to orders, went topside to the deck. He made the dangerous trek across the slippery deck to the wheelhouse, where he saw the steersman, the pilot, lashed to his post of holding the wheel. Inch by inch, the pilot was turning the ship back out to sea, away from the rocky coast. The pilot saw the passenger and smiled. The man went below and told the rest of the passengers, I have seen the face of the pilot, and he smiled. All is well. In the trials and troubles of life, in the middle of the storms of all our life, all we need to see is the face of our pilot, Jesus. Jesus is steering your ship to its intended destination. Let him control the wheel of your ship. He knows the way because he is the way. God didn't promise us a smooth, storm-free voyage through life, but he did promise that he will get us safely into port, didn't he? Safely home. You know him. Keep trusting him. Tom's going to come and lead us in our prayer and praise. In the meanwhile, I'm going to give us a brief summary. Number one, Rob will put them up again for you. God strengthens us in our suffering so that we are able to strengthen others in their suffering. We heal when we help others heal. Some practical ways to help the hurting. One, surrender your own suffering to God's sovereignty. Pray first, talk second. <clears throat> Show up and be there. When you're there, listen more, speak less. Pray for them and pray with them regularly. Only Jesus can heal our pain. You walk with them in their pain towards Jesus. By the way, that's pretty good for us to do in our own life too. When you patiently endure suffering, it draws others closer to Jesus. Your pain is their gain. Your pain is not all about you. Lastly, there is no trouble that God will not deliver you from in his time and in his way. So trust him and not yourself. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. Uh, I know this week you'll have enough troubles and trials where this will be practical. And we're going to have an opportunity to practice what we know. So now that you do know, go and do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.